from Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Senate Armed Services Committee will consider eight Defense Department nominees in two hearings next week. Next Tuesday's hearing will include nominee Sean Manasco to be Undersecretary of the Air Force and John Whitley to be Director of the Cost Assessment and Program Evaluation Office. Politico reports the witnesses at Thursday's hearing will include Jason Aben to be Pentagon Inspector General. The White House's choice to be the next commander of Northern Command says he supports basing the Coast Guard's new icebreakers in the Arctic. Air Force Lieutenant General Glenn Van Herk tells the Senate Armed Services Committee the increase in traffic in the Arctic from Russia and China requires an increase in U.S. presence there. USNI News reports Van Herk says the icebreaker site should be in the U.S. portion of the Arctic region. SpaceCom Deputy Commander Lieutenant General James Dickinson will push declassification of space if the Senate confirms him to be the next SpaceCom commander. He tells the Senate Armed Services Committee declassification will help the warfighter on the ground. C4ISRNet reports Dickinson tells the committee training troops on capability and delivering that capability are two main reasons for his push for declassification of space. A change to some of the Defense Department's use it or lose it money could come in this year's budget negotiations. The ranking member of the House Armed Services Committee, Mac Thornberry, will push appropriators to let the department roll over half of its uh, operations and maintenance budget to the next year like other agencies can. Steve Cortese's former staff director of the Senate Appropriations Committee is writing about the rollover idea along with Charlie Hoy and Breaking Defense. Steve, you're writing under the headline, Do Not Change O&M Spending Rules Say Former Appropriators. Why is this a bad idea in your view? Francis, good morning. Thanks again for having me on today. Uh, we disagreed with the initiative proposed by the House Armed Services Committee, believing that the focus really needs to be on transparency, accountability, and discipline in how monies appropriated from the taxpayers are used by the Department of Defense. Uh, that process involves months of bu budget preparation at DOD, months of deliberation, negotiation by the Congress. And the focus should be on ensuring the monies are spent for the purposes for which they're specifically appropriated and authorized following that request by the Department of Defense. There, it seems to be a little bit of a solution looking for a problem in that getting the monies out early and efficiently really is the priority, not at the back end of the process, what do we do with monies we haven't spent? Yeah, the argument that Congressman Thornberry made is that there is this end of the year spending rush that we see in other parts of the federal government as well that um, would lead him to believe the money might be better spent if it can roll over and be spent more thoughtfully rather than just blown out the door at the end of the year. You and Charlie write in this piece, though, that that's kind of a counterintuitive thought. You write an excess of unused funds results from Congress providing more money than was needed. So it sounds like the onus, again, should be on the appropriators and not the authorizers to determine where this money should go. Am I reading that right? Well, I think the two legislative processes have kind of a different focus. The authorizing committees 
uh, rightly uh, look at the amount of monies they've authorized for that upcoming year and want to ensure that all of those resources are applied to critical national security needs. The appropriators have that same objective, except that they typically face much more constrained resources to allocate across the entirety of the government, including the Department of Defense. And there are implications of extending that period of obligational authority by any agency, but especially the Department of Defense, given its size, that really then confounds the budget preparation process at DOD and the legislative process by the Congress. If funds are extended out for another six months, another half year, it's gonna make those budget preparation and legislative work much more challenging because there will be so many more unknowns and uncertainties about how much is needed for that upcoming year. So if you call this a solution in search of a problem, does that mean you don't see the way that things are going now as a problem and, and this should continue the way that it's going now? Well, I think the issue is how do we help the Department of Defense obligate the monies that are appropriated and authorized in a timely way throughout the year. Uh, it's understandable as the Congress, as Charlie and I cited in our piece, has not necessarily gotten the work done early every year, and that, that's a dilemma. Makes it more challenging, but in the end, there was a plan to spend these monies. The department approved the plan, OMB approved it, the Congress approved it, and the focus should be on what was wrong with the plan, perhaps more than how do we create an extended period for monies to be spent, irrespective of whether it's for the purposes originally requested and approved. Another argument in favor of this is that other departments have this power. Homeland Security is one and there are others. Does that make any difference in the way that the Defense Department should operate? Well, again, the Department of Defense gets money with multiple periods of obligational authority, the, the time during which defense officials can spend the money. Uh, procurement's three years, R&D is two years, shipbuilding is 10 years. In most federal agencies, monies are entirely available only for that current fiscal year. And so they face a slightly different management challenge than DOD, where the executive branch and Congress have already reached agreement on the categories of spending that merit multi-year obligational authority. And I would add that once an O&M dollars don't have to be spent in that first year, they simply need to be obligated and put on contract. Once a contract is signed, those monies are spent over two, three, four years in many cases. It's not that the money has to be spent in the first year, it merely needs to be put on contract so there's clarity about what the money is being used for. We have less than a minute left, Steve. Uh, you and Charlie close this piece out by writing, if Congress were to loosen the restrictions on the use of funds, it would only serve to weaken a system that's already far too short of discipline. Where would you like to see more discipline instilled in this system? I think the, the key here is how do we create an environment where on a more frequent basis than end of the year, there's clarity about how the money's being spent. The appropriations committees already get monthly reports of obligations, and those are central to the work of the Congress in ensuring that monies are prioritized. More discipline exercised in the Pentagon when they see 
money's not being obligated consistent with their own plan and leading to this potential overhang later in the year is probably the best way uh, for both sides of the river in this case to ensure that the right amount of money is going to the right priorities for critical national security needs. Steve, thanks very much for coming on. It's great insight. I appreciate your time today. Okay, Francis, thank you so much. Up next, recruiting challenges for Pentagon number crunchers. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how the department can fill the open jobs and work toward a clean audit. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The Defense Department's audit troubles are making it harder for the department to find financial management talent. Doug Glenn, the department's assistant deputy chief financial officer, says the skepticism potential Pentagon employees have is warranted. Mike McCord's a member of the Commission on the National Defense Strategy. He's former Undersecretary of Defense Comptroller in the Obama administration. Mike, welcome back. Thanks for coming on. What are the challenges that the audit process in particular and maybe the frustration that surrounds it for the people that oversee the Pentagon, what does that cause for the recruitment efforts that Doug's talking about here? Um, thanks, Francis. It's good to be back. Uh, and I think that's a real issue, for sure. Uh, people want to be part of a top-performing, you know, world-class organization. And DOD is that kind of organization, but not on the audit. So, I mean, that, that that's going to be an issue in attracting talent. If I could start with the general and go to the specific, I think in terms of how I think a normal person thinks about whether this is a place I want to work. There's a whole set of lifestyle issues, right, about can I afford to live in this area? Uh, what is my commute like? Is this a place my spouse can find the job we both can have a, the job? Won't. What are the schools like? So these are obviously way beyond the control of the agency head. Then you move down to what is it like to be a federal employee? And, and obviously there's a lot of talk about uh, the hiring process is, is where you tend to hear the most discussion. Interesting that when we talk about military personnel, the other big part of the human capital issue in the, in the Department of Defense, we, you hear people say recruiting and retention, recruiting and retention. When you talk about federal civilians, you often hear people just talk about hiring process, hiring process, hiring process. How do I get them in the door, not how do I keep them? So there's issues that, that I think are very important with how you retain federal employees of any agency, including DOD, you know, are, 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 are you going to freeze my pay? Are there, especially the negative ones, are there sequesters? Are there furloughs? Um, the rare occasions where there's whistleblowers, how are they treated? Even if I don't expect that I will ever be one. All of these kind of shape the environment, you know, so there's the, the lifestyle choices that go with schools and all these things beyond your control. There's the federal, the federal process. Do I, how do I view being a federal employee? Now you come down to working at DOD. What I found was that a lot of our folks that worked at DOD and financial management um, expected to work harder than their peers at other agencies. Probably a minority of them, and as I think, as I think the, uh, the article uh, that we read beforehand discussed, probably a minority of them have actually worked at other agencies. Many of them are career DOD people. They've maybe come from the field, moved to Washington. But of those that did work at other agencies, they did feel like they worked a little harder at DOD and they got that sense of mission that, that, that paid them back in that respect. They, they, they wanted that extra challenge. So some of that is a positive, the fact that you have this big challenge. What could be a bigger audit challenge than getting DOD to pass an audit? Uh, but again, if, if you feel like you'll never get there, that's definitely gonna be detrimental to, to, to your m morale. And the last thing I say is that, is that 
CPAs, people in this, people who are experienced and talented in this field have so many choices, right? They could be federal, they could be non-federal, they could work at any agency, they could work in many cities. So, so you do have a specific challenge, I think, attracting a top uh, accountants in particular and keeping them. The article that you're referring to is a terrific report by my former colleague Jared Serbu at Federal News Network, um, quoting both Doug Glenn and Jonathan Moak, the acting comptroller of the Army. And the quote that Jared has, from, uh, Jared Serbu has from uh, uh, John Moak, I think, is particularly interesting because he says the spending data that could eventually enable DOD to pass an audit exists today, aggregating those details and presenting them in a form that auditors can reliably understand and double checks another matter. That's Jared's writing on what Jonathan Moak said. That to me says that maybe the hump that the department has to overcome to auditability is not as great as it appears from the outside. Is that a fair read on my part, Mike? I think in terms of the, the thing that the average taxpayer would want to hear, do we know where the money was spent? Does the department know where the money is spent? I think you're correct that that is not uh, an insurmountable hurdle. The balance sheet is the really difficult part for the Department of Defense. It's less relevant to managing the department, and it's less relevant to this question of, wait, hey, do those people know what, do we know what the money was spent on? So I think that you're right. Uh, there's a ton of information out there. The, 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 fact, the problem is that there is so much, you know, the scope of the organization is just so large that, that getting it down to whether there's nothing missing nothing that doesn't match up in all these records has been a challenge. We have uh, just a couple of minutes left. Uh, the problem that Doug Glenn talks about as far as recruiting talent is specifically from other agencies. He used to work at NASA, used to work at GSA, and he's asking his former colleagues in those organizations, would you come and would you consider coming and working for me? And he says they're telling him, I'd love to work for you again. Not sure I want to work in the Defense Department. He's overcome already a lot of the potential challenges that you talked about at the beginning of our conversation, Mike, but he still has to overcome that piece of the Pentagon itself. What do you think does that? What, what would be something that some people could consider doing now in order to overcome that? Well, again, I think, I think that you can always try to attract that, that type of person that just is very attracted to national security, that that's their career. But th those are the people, as, as we discussed, that are already in DOD, right, that are probably career DOD people. So to get those from the outside, you have to, um, you have, to have a message, I think, of what have we accomplished, how far have we moved, what are the prospects for, for success? Because, you know, again, I think if I think I'm never going to be part of a successful audit, that, that's certainly going to deter me if, I, if I'm already reasonably happy with where I am at another agency. Mike McCord, thanks as always. It's great to have you. Thank you, Francis. Up next, a historical approach to Navy reform. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what would King do to fix today's problems at sea? Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The Navy will spend $10 million on the first phase of the rebuild of the USS Bonhomme Richard. It's the latest in a series of setbacks for the Navy that a chain of Navy leaders have taken on. Harlan Ullman is chair at the Kellowin Group. He writes about the lessons we can learn from Fleet Admiral Ernie King 
in the U.S. Naval Institute magazine proceedings. Harlan, welcome back. It's great to have you on the program. One of the reasons I love reading your work is because I know how careful you are with the words that you choose when you write, Harlan. And you start this piece out by writing, fire on board the Bonhomme Richards, the latest in a series of mishaps that have plagued the U.S. Navy. When I think of the word mishaps, I think of avoidable mistakes. Is that what you're getting at here, Harlan? In most cases, yes, absolutely. I think a lot of the problems are going to be seen as the function of individuals, when in fact I think there are huge institutional problems. And the reason I use the analogy of bringing Fleet Admiral Ernie King back, because King, who was known to be harsh and unjust, was famously bright, famously acerbic, would be taking a really tough look at the Navy based on his World War II experiences. And I think he would look, first of all, at the overall strategy. He would look to see how well the Navy is prepared to fight. And then he would take a look at people and equipment that meet that are needed to bring the Navy up to what he believes should be the standard that the Navy needs to reach. What's your sense of how that's different and why it's different than what Navy leaders have done over the past 5, 10, 15, 20 years to get where we are today? First, uh, I'm not sure Ernie King would have made lieutenant. He was a boozer and a womanizer. And you also know that Fleet Admiral Chester Nimitz as an ensign in 1908 went aground and went court-martialed. And so I'm not sure that they would have been promotable. But King was redoubtable. He was a surface officer. He commanded a submarine flotilla. And he won his wings as a naval, as a naval aviator, as a captain. Uh, he became chief of naval operations in February 42 and also took the title of commander-in-chief, which meant he was in the chain of command. Now, if King were to come back today, I think he would see the president and say, Mr. President, I will take the job if I have unlimited or nearly unlimited authority. And the president, I think, would probably grant King that, provided we get 355 ships, and probably give King an extended tour, because four years will not be enough. In those circumstances, I think that King would take a look at the Navy. He would find it undermanned, overstretched, under-resourced, and with a lot of legacy platforms. And in his evaluation, based on his World War II experience, I think as the Navy took a hell of a beating during the first 18 months of the war, he would see that happening if indeed a war broke out with China because the Pacific would be his area of strategic importance. He would probably regard Russia as an irritant. It has one-seventh the population of Europe and of the United States, and it spends one-tenth to one-fifteenth on defense that we do. And so China would be the center point. He would realize that as in 1942 and 43, the Navy did not have the capacity with sustained operations in against Japan. So it would take time to build up. And in those circumstances, he would probably have a defense that would keep the Chinese Navy within the first island chain and emulate the island hopping campaign of World War II, taking out Chinese facilities, Belt and Road, and elsewhere to starve the Chinese as we starve the Japanese. As you, as you lay this out, Harlan, in this piece, I was struck by the parallels between where we were vis-a-vis -vis the Japanese in the 1940s and where we are today vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese. What is the gap between what we accomplished then and what we potentially need to accomplish today to prevent getting into a hot war with China the way that we did with Japan? First, and I'll use King as a surrogate for me. But I think King would say that we have the wrong strategy. We need to go to a strategy, I said, the first island chain. We also need to rely on diplomacy. We need far more allies. But more importantly, in terms of the Navy, I think King would make some major changes. First, he would note that none of the admirals today obviously have the same wartime experience as King and his peers did. 
because we haven't fought a naval war since 1945. So we put in place fleet problems and war games that would really challenge the mettle of senior officers and flag officers to make sure that he was getting the best and those who can operate most under the greatest pressure. Second, as a submarine, or at least as a flotilla commander, he knew that the Royal Navy in 1919 started a course called Perishers to qualify commanding officers to submarine command. The course is still running and over the 101 years, approximately 25% of the officers who went through that failed. They did not go on to command. So I think King would institute a Perishers for all commands at sea and ashore. He would also revolutionize education. He was one of the three in the in the Knox I. King Report of Naval Education that got buried after it was written in 1919. King famously said that a study of the history of war is necessary to make sure we have peace in the future. And finally, as you know, King created the 10th Fleet and commanded the 10th Fleet in World War II for breaking Japanese and German codes. He would take command of the 10th Fleet and use it in non-kinetic ways to take on China and Russia to include space, cyber, and all sorts of other non-kinetic aspects. And finally, in terms of procurement, he would certainly go for more competition. He would not like single source. He'd try to get second and third sources. And he probably would threaten using foreign sources, even though Congress would protest. He also would write tougher contracts. And because he was not, he was worried about the survivability of aircraft carriers, in the case where we only have one builder of nuclear aircraft carriers, the contracts would be written so we don't repeat USS Fords. And I think King would be able to, would be willing to risk defaulting and putting the, the shipyard out of business if they could not comply. Because as in World War II, you will know, the Navy went from very large decks to small so-called light and Jeep carriers. So of the nearly 100 carriers we had, about 80 were smaller versions. And I think that's what he would look towards in building up the new Navy. Harlan, there is always much more I'd like to discuss with you than there is time to discuss it. Thanks very much for coming on. My pleasure, Jeff Francis. Take care. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available as an audio podcast now. You get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and tune in or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.